It's good to see you here this morning, and I want to introduce to you a couple of friends of mine. They have become just uh, good friends, had an opportunity. This is George and Maribel Baker, and uh, they spend half of their year here in North Carolina because they have kids here, and then they spend half of the year in Southern California. And um, we had the opportunity to have lunch a couple weeks ago. And in the course of our conversations, actually even before that, I had found out that Maribel was working on memorizing the book of Philippians. Now, I, you've heard me talk about scripture memory uh, before. When I was a, just a little kid, I was in Awana. Anybody in the Awana program when you were little? Yes, yes, we could sing the Awana song right now. And one of the cool things when I was in Awana is uh, for every little section that you said, every, every few verses that were, were a section and you memorize those verses, and then when you said those sections, uh, they would actually, the, the church had a donut-making machine, right? You wonder I'm in the, why I'm in the ministry today, because I was convinced that every church had a donut-making machine. They would make these donuts, and for every section that we said, we would get, we'd get one of these donuts, and I thought that was just awesome. And I memorized a lot of scripture when I was young. Yeah. And as we get older, and some of us know this, it's harder to memorize. I mean, at the age I'm at now, uh, it's harder to memorize. It takes me longer. And uh, George and Maribel are about, what, about five years older than I am. And so um, I just thought that that was just an incredible thing. Don't you? Uh, that she would do that and would uh, attempt to hide uh, God's word in her heart. And so I asked her if this morning she would quote for us Philippians chapter 1, uh, where we're going to be uh, today. Thank you. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way for all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share and God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So this is my prayer, that your love will flourish, that you will not only love much, but you will also love well. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary, a life Jesus is proud of, bountiful in fruits of the soul, making Jesus Christ attractive to all and getting everyone involved in the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put in chains for the defense of the gospel. 
the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition. But what does it matter? The important thing is that Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice because I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Holy Spirit, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ is preached, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm going to continue living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man without being frightened in any way. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you to not only believe on him, but to also suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggles you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. That was awesome. I'm nervous. Wow. Thank you. Wow. Was that fantastic or what? I mean, if I'd have done that when I was nine, I could have had several dozen donuts. That was just incredible. Didn't seem nervous to me. Did she seem nervous to you? That is so fantastic. And Maribel, how many, how, how much of it do you have memorized so far? I'm going into the third chapter. Going into the third chapter, great. It was a dramatic um, reciting. That was just fantastic. Well, turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 12 and uh, go through uh, verse 18 uh, today. If you're new with us, we're going through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the, to the, uh, uh, to the church at Philippi, and uh, we're taking it verse by verse, section by section, till we get all the way uh, to chapter 4. And if you're here with us uh, each week, by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, trust me, you will know the book of Philippians. Uh, not only will you know it, but you'll know it in a way in which you can make application of it uh, in your life, which is why we study Scripture. We don't study Scripture in order that we might develop fatter spiritual heads. We study Scripture in order that we might take it and make application of it in our lives, and it's our prayer uh, that you'll do just that. Well, all of us at times, uh, at least I have, you've waited patiently for an email or a letter that you're expecting uh, to arrive in your inbox or in your mailbox. And if it's a letter that you're anxious to receive, it obviously contains information that you really want to know. Um, maybe uh, for some you remember, in fact, some maybe right here are thinking about this. Maybe it's a, a college acceptance letter or in some cases a rejection. 
Uh, maybe it's test results from some medical uh, procedure that you had. It could be a job offer. Uh, when I've received uh, those emails or those letters, I have a tendency, and you probably do too, you kind of scan through it real quickly till you get to the piece of information that you're looking for. You've not been accepted to Harvard uh, University. Anybody ever get that letter? Or we didn't even apply, that's right. Your test results came back negative. We would like to offer you the job, and here's the package that we're offering you. That's the news that I'm looking for. I read that news, and then I have a tendency to go back later and kind of read through it a little more uh, clearly for the other uh, details. And I think it's possible that this is how the Philippians were reading this letter that Paul sent to them. You remember they had sent Epaphroditus to, which is a, was a man in their church, to go and check upon Paul because they had heard that he was imprisoned. Uh, they didn't know if he was alive or, or if he was dead. They hadn't seen him in several years. Was he chained up? Was he, was he sick? Had he already been martyred for his faith? And I can just imagine them that as they're reading this uh, letter that Paul is sending to them, they're kind of scanning through it until they get to this particular section where Paul says, here's where I am, here's what's going on, and here's what's happening as a result of what's happening in my life. And maybe they read through those first 11 verses rather rapidly until they got down to verse 12. We follow along in your Bibles or uh, on your uh, phone or other devices. I read uh, those verses we're going to go through them, actually almost phrase by phrase in some cases, but I want to read it for you just so you get a whole context. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed do preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And Paul says, in that I rejoice. Let's go back, and I want to look at that particular section and uh, I want to see just some nuggets of truth that Paul has here. That phrase that he starts out with, I want you to know, this phrase translates a common Greek expression that's often found in ancient letters. It would be like me saying to you, hey, listen up. I know some of you are looking, looking down right now and you're looking at something up. Pay attention to me because I'm going to say something now that's, that's really important and you need to understand this. It's just an ancient expression that was drawing attention to something that might be misunderstood, might be hard to accept. And notice that he calls them brothers. The inference, by the way, is brothers and sisters. And I think we need to stop for just a moment and we need to understand the significance of this term, brother. Now, Paul uses uh, what in his culture is a deeply familial uh, term, to address his fellow followers uh, in Jesus. And today the term doesn't really carry with it much weight. You know, I, I, I love watching the Discovery Channel and there's this, uh, there's this guy on there and he refurbishes cars and does really cool thing with stuff. He calls everybody brother. Now he's out on the West Coast and they have a tendency to do that. You know, it's, sometimes it's not just brother, it's bruh, you know, bra, you know, whatever, fist pumping. 
And sometimes I, I hear that, and I think in the context of the church, they stole our word. I mean, that's the word that we use as followers of Jesus. We use that term brother and sister. It's an intimate term. In fact, in Paul's Mediterranean culture, this word was, was deep, and it was so much more significant than it is to us. Do you know that in their culture, the bonds that a brother would have with a brother or a brother with his sister was much more significant than even the bond with a husband or with a wife because they were actually of the same blood, from the same father. And for Paul to use this term, brothers, meant we are, we're, we're, as tight, we're in as tight a relationship as we can be. And of course, we know theologically that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we do share spiritually the same father, do we not? That's God. And so this was a deep, deep term, a deep term of endearment. And I want to suggest to you this morning that when we have this relationship as brothers, as sisters in Christ, this relationship influences and impacts the way that we respond to and the way we stand with each other in hard times and suffering. It just should. I'm going over this uh, yesterday, and I'm tidying things up and getting ready for today, and, and I was typing uh, on my keyboard, and I typed, this relationship influences and impacts the way that we, and immediately I just stopped. And I thought, are there any brothers and sisters in my life that are going through deep struggle, deep suffering right now? Would they feel connected to me as a brother? And immediately, a man's name came to my mind in our church. And I've had contact with him. I've had interaction with him. But immediately, it was stopping typing and on the phone, making sure that he understood that I perceived that our relationship as brothers is more than just simply us saying, I'm going to pray for you. How many of us are so good at that? You'll hear somebody in deep struggle that they're suffering, and you will say to them, all together we said, I will pray for you. And sometimes we don't even do it, do we? I mean, if we're really honest, let's be transparent. We don't even do it. As soon as we leave that conversation, they're still suffering. They're still struggling. We're going to pray for them, and we move on with our lives. Paul is saying, especially in context here, context here, when he calls them brothers, this is a deep connection which causes us to respond differently to these brothers who are in hardship, who are suffering. Can I suggest to you this morning that if you were here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of that, we have a responsibility to respond differently than we might if we didn't share that relationship. And it is more than just simply saying, I'm going to pray for you. Prayer is great. We need to pray. We do pray. But we need to respond in action. Can I challenge you to be that way as the body here at Northwest? We do so often, we do so well at that, and yet sometimes we drop that ball. And our brother and our sister is over here and they're struggling, they're suffering, and we're not totally identifying with them in their time of suffering. And Paul says, he goes on to say, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, if you're here and you're a new follower of Jesus, you say, well, what happened to him? What got him to this point where he's under house arrest in Rome? What happened to Paul? 
If you go back to the book of Acts, and we find the events that Paul's referring to in Acts chapter 21 through 28. Paul's in Jerusalem, he's preaching. People don't like what he's saying, they're not responding well. Uh, people are responding to Jesus, but the, uh, some of the Jewish people that are looking on are offended, they're upset, they don't like his boldness. They get mad almost to the point where they're ready to lynch him. He's put in prison in Caesarea, and he only escapes a flogging by pleading his Roman citizenship. He gets thrown into jail, and for about two years, he goes in and out of conversations with various government leaders until he actually stands before uh, King Agrippa. He has appealed prior to that, he's appealed to uh, his Roman citizenship that he should be taken to Rome and, and be given a trial before Caesar because of his Roman citizenship. And so finally, King Agrippa releases him, they put him on a boat, and he heads for Rome, and while on that boat, he is shipwrecked. <laughs> if things can't get any worse, he's shipwrecked, and, and everybody has to jump overboard in order to save themselves. They hit rocks, they float on things, the, the men that can't swim, the others swim to shore, they land on the island of Malta. As they get to Malta, if that's not bad enough, you're on an island, you're not where you want to be, Paul, the text says, starts building a fire, and as he builds a fire, there's a snake that's in the wood that actually comes out of, the, out of the, the, the wood. Kids are looking going, is that really a true story? It's really, it's in there, right? And the snake grabs a hold of Paul's hand, and they think, oh, he's a murderer. That's why he was imprisoned to begin with. And Paul shakes the snake off. They wait for him to die. He doesn't die. They perceive that he's a god, small g. He's not but he starts ministering to them in the name of Jesus. God uses him to heal people. He has an incredible ministry as he's shipwrecked on this island of Malta for three months. After three months, he's put on a ship. He gets to Rome, and when he gets to Rome, he's put under uh, house arrest. Important for you to understand that, uh, that he's under house uh, arrest. Uh, and as he, in fact, if you read in uh, uh, Acts chapter 28, we realize that not only is he there on house arrest, uh, but he's, uh, he's in a home, he's chained up, he's actually chained to a soldier, and this is the way that he will find himself until he finally gets a trial. This is what Paul says when he, mean, when he says, uh, what has happened to me? This is what he means, this is what he's talking about. Can I ask you a question this morning? What, what's happened to you in your life that has brought you to the point where you are right now? What kinds of difficulties, what kind of discouragement has happened to you that's brought you to the place you are today on February 5th, 2017? For some of us, maybe it was a diagnosis that you received. And you remember that diagnosis and that's where you find yourself today, underneath that cloud of that diagnosis. Maybe it was the death of somebody that was incredibly close to you. Uh, for some of you, uh, statistically this is true, there are a number of you that are in this room this morning, and for you, that time of suffering and discouragement in your life began with the end of a marriage relationship. Maybe it started with the loss of a job or uh, some other financial difficulties. The things that happen to us can be used in our lives for growth and for good, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others, or they can cause paralysis. Have you noticed that to be true? When that event, when that thing happens in your life, it's either an opportunity for growth or so many times 
it has the opposite effect in our life that it almost causes us to stop right in our tracks and we do absolutely nothing. And do you think that what has happened to Paul was his dream? I mean, we certainly know that he wanted to go back to Rome. Rome at the time was, was one of the greatest cities, if not the greatest city in the world. He wanted to go back to Rome with the gospel, but I'm quite sure he would have desired to get there a much different way than to be falsely imprisoned, to be shipwrecked, to be bitten by a snake, all of those things, and now to be under house arrest. In fact, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he described it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. You know why it was less one? Because they felt that any more would actually take the life of the person that was being beaten. And so it was always one, one less. He said, I received that five times I was beaten like that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Verse 27, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst without food and cold and exposure. And then he says in verse 25 and if, in verse 28, and if that wasn't bad enough, I'm your pastor and I have a real deep concern for all of these churches as well. I don't know about you, but I read that and think, man, he's like, uh, he's like the ancient Jack Bauer. I mean, you remember in 24, you, you watched it every Monday night, right? We couldn't wait. We didn't know what was going to happen, but here's what we knew. He ain't going to die, right? Jack isn't going to die. In fact, if you think Jack's dead now, you don't understand the story. He's coming back. And I look at this, and I look at this text, and I think, Paul, you should have been dead. Like you're like a cat, I mean, you just keep coming back, just keep coming back, just keep coming back. In spite of all of these things that have happened, God's got him to Rome where he'd wanted to be, not in the circumstances in which he had desired to get there, but he's there. That, in a nutshell, is what's happened to him. And Paul says, of all these things that have happened to him, they've served one purpose. What's that purpose, Paul? He says, the gospel has advanced. In spite of all the suffering, in spite of all the pain, all the discouragement, something really great has happened. His sole passion in life is being accomplished through him as a result of these unbelievably unfortunate, it appear, circumstances and suffering. People are coming to know Jesus. Well, how are they coming to know Jesus, Paul? Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, my chains in the NIV, is for Christ. Now let's look at the setting of Paul's imprisonment. It's important to understand he was under house arrest. In fact, in chapter 28, uh, verse 30, it says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. The text says not only did he live there for two years at his own expense, but he welcomed all who came to him. In other words, people came in and out. People are always meeting with him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul's in Rome. He's under house arrest. As he writes this letter to the Philippians, we don't know exactly the conditions. We can safely assume, though, these were not good conditions. It was an ancient jail-like setting. I'm sure that it wasn't climate-controlled just perfectly, you know, with all the, uh, the food, you know, stocked in the refrigerator just like you need. He was imprisoned. 
It was definitely not luxurious accommodations. We do know that he's chained to, depending on what translation you have, he's chained to a member of the imperial guard. Uh, some uh, translations say the praetorian guard. This is a group of approximately 10,000 uh, Roman soldiers, and these guys were the best of the best. They were soldiers who were dispersed uh, strategically uh, throughout the city to keep the peace, but even more than that, they had as their main task, much like our uh, secret service to guard, the, we have a secret service to guard the president. This imperial guard would guard the emperor. They would serve for 12 years, and then after they served, uh, they were granted the highest honors and privileges that they could get in their particular society, and they were given a, gen, uh, a very, very generous uh, retirement. They became so powerful, in fact, that later in history, they would be known as kingmakers. In other words, they didn't just protect the emperor, protect the king, they would actually choose those people. They weren't any ordinary soldier. And can you imagine for just a moment being chained to the apostle Paul, what that would be like? I think it'd be cool. Of course we do, right? I mean, I'd love to be chained to him for a 12-hour shift. That'd be awesome. But can you imagine your whole shift? You get there at 8 o'clock. Historians tell us that probably uh, he was chained either at the wrist or possibly at the ankle. Uh, they um, imagine that that chain might have been only 18 inches long. And 24-7, he was chained to one of these imperial guards, one of these praetorian guards. Can you imagine what that might have been like? Now, we know looking back, because that's history, we, we can look back and we can say at the very moment that Paul is chained, I mean, you're right next to this guy. Whatever you got to do, he's going to be right there with you. We know that at that moment, the apostle Paul is penning some of the very words of the New Testament. Isn't that incredible to think about? So this guy's just sitting there next to him. He's riding away to the brothers. You know, they're in Philippi. Greetings. And he just keeps, you know, and, you know, every once in a while he goes, what are you writing? Well, I'm glad you asked. And then for the next 10 hours of the ship. And Paul says that this is happening evidently over and over and over and over and over again. Those guys would just rotate in and out, in and out, in and out. He says, the result of my imprisonment, uh, that, that God Christ has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Isn't that a remarkable thing? One commentator noted that Paul is the Trojan horse in Caesar's system. He's the Trojan horse. He has gone places where the gospel wasn't supposed to go. Remember, they're trying to squelch this gospel, this idea of this, this Jesus. They don't want that out there. And yet Paul has infiltrated just the very people that they would not want to be influenced with the gospel. Paul's chains are for the purpose of people knowing Christ. Do you ever feel chained? Do you ever feel like your circumstances that you're in in your life are like a, a prison? I talked to many of you, and, and over the years there are different ones that have, have shared how they feel uh, not satisfied in a job. You feel chained to a desk or to a position. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you feel that way right now. You're thinking, oh, thanks for bringing that up. Tomorrow morning at 8.30, i got to go back there and put the ball and chain on my ankle. And that's where I'll be for five days. Maybe that describes your life. Have you ever considered the possibility that there are people there that you're interacting with, that you're conversing with, that are observing your life, who will never have an opportunity to view a person whose life has been radically transformed by this Jesus unless they see it in you. And so your chains are there to serve that particular purpose. Some moms or stay-at-home dads feel uh, chained. 
sometimes, don't you? Uh, to your house and uh, to your kids. Uh, hopefully not literally. If you are, please cry out for help. We will come and, and, and rescue you. But I can remember times when our children were little and I would come home and you could just tell that Diana was at the very, very end, right? I've heard guys say, you know, they come home and immediately they walk through the door and it's like, here, he's yours. Some of you are going, did that just last night, you know, just yesterday I did that, several times this week. You feel like you get out of bed every single day and do the same things with little or no gratitude ever shown. Have you ever considered the possibility that those young lives that you're influencing are going to become the young lives that are going to have incredible influence as they multiply out? And what you're pouring into them right now may serve an incredible purpose. And so while you might feel chained at this particular moment, there may be a reason. Some of you might feel chained to your body or to a hospital bed because of your health. You go from doctor to doctor, from treatment to treatment. Have you ever considered the possibility that the reason why you're suffering, why you're, why you're going through, what you're going through is because your life is going to touch people that my life will never touch, that you're going to have an opportunity to show somebody the reality of what a relationship with Jesus Christ means when you go through suffering, when you go through difficulty. And you're going to touch those lives because of the suffering that you're going through. Think of my friend Bruce Radcliffe, who's sitting right down here, and it was about, what, Bruce, about four years ago now, uh, that Bruce was at the hospital, at Duke Hospital, and the doctor came out and said, Bruce, uh, you've got stage four lung cancer. You never want to hear that, stage four. Four years later, God's not ready for Brucey. I mean, he's still, he's still here. He's still kicking. But every two weeks, he goes back to Duke for a treatment, and he sees the same people over and over and over and over again. I asked him in December, I said, what are you doing today? He said, I'm going to take cookies up to Duke. He's going up there, going to give him cookies. These are people he's learned to, to love, and they've watched he and Judy walk through and navigate this difficult time in their lives. Have you ever considered the possibility that your suffering is there for a divine purpose that is so much bigger, so much important than just you? The question should not be, will we suffer? The ultimate question is, what will happen as a result of our suffering? Don't simply bear your suffering. Use it. Paul goes on to tell what's happened because of his suffering. And verse 14 says, And most of the brothers have become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. They're much more bold to speak the word without fear. As a result of what Paul has experienced, other people are looking at it and they're going, if he can do that, and if he's, even, if, he's, if he's even willing to do that, if he's willing to live under those conditions and yet still name the name of Christ, then I can as well. And so they're sharing the message more often and much more boldly than they had before. The historian uh, Tertullian is a fascinating man. Um, I know you're not usually looking for things to do, but if you ever are, you ought to do a Google search and just read some of the things uh, that uh, the historian Tertullian wrote. He lived around 200 AD. He was a prolific early Christian author from Carthage in northern Africa. And he's considered by many to be the, uh, uh, the father of Latin Christianity and even of Western uh, theology. Uh, he's one of the first to use the term Trinity 
which has great theological uh, significance uh, to followers of Jesus. Historians tell us that he did not grow up in a Christian home, though. It's fascinating that he came to Christ around uh, age 40. The event, uh, evidently, as you study his life, must have been very sudden, very transforming. In fact, he said of himself that he couldn't imagine a truly Christian life without such a conscious breach, a radical act of conversion. Most believe that what influenced him most was the boldness and courage of Christians who were enduring suffering. It's said of his life that he was struck with the courage with which stupid and contemptible slave men and little slave girls faced a hideous death against all nature. In other words, he would watch these people that would literally give up their lives because they were convinced of the reality of who Jesus was and the relationship that they had with him. And the historical record tells us that he observed this so long that he became a Christian himself and he turned his talents over and used them for the defense of Christianity. And he argued this. He argued that persecution actually strengthens the church. As martyrs bravely die for their faith, he later wrote this, the blood of Christians is the seed of the church. The blood of Christians is the seed of the church. Now, if you're like me, you do everything you can to avoid uh, suffering and pain. Anything that I think could physically hurt me, uh, I avoid. I don't even like skiing because I'm so afraid that I'll slide down a mountain and I'll hit a tree. You know, I just don't, anything that I think could hurt me, I avoid. I don't want any pain. I don't want any pain in my life. I don't want any pain in the lives of people that I, that I love, that I, that I care about. I do everything I can, and we do as well, if you're honest, you do everything that you can to eliminate suffering in your life. And yet it is in those times of difficulty and suffering, Paul says, that the gospel advances. He goes on to say, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Pretty easy to understand, except in context you need to understand. These people who were uh, preaching out of envy and rivalry, they weren't preaching a false gospel. They were preaching the true gospel. It's just that their motives weren't exactly pure. Uh, Bible scholars believe that most likely these were men who were indeed preaching a true gospel, but they were actually kind of glad that Paul was in the conditions that he was in. Uh, Because Paul was kind of the dude of the day, right? I mean, he was out there planting churches. You know, everybody wanted to listen to Paul speak. He was well-educated and very intelligent. And they believe, the scholars believe that probably what the case was is that they were simply jealous. And so they were looking at an opportunity saying, Paul's in prison. It's at this time, we're going we're gonna to go and we're going to build our churches. We're going to build our little kingdom while he's in jail. So it's not all such a bad thing that he's in jail. Then there were other people who were preaching the gospel out of love. Love for Jesus, but here's what's important for you to understand. Really, in this text, it's because of their deep love and devotion to the Apostle Paul. They recognized that Paul being imprisoned in Rome was leaving a void, and so they stepped up. And it's important for us to understand Paul's response to both motivations. Whether it was a good motive or a bad motive, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, bad motives, or in truth, good motives, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And that should be a good reminder to us as well. Uh, Some people at times ask me or others on our staff, well, 
you know, what do you think about the Summit Church? They got that young pastor over there, you know, J.D. Greer. He's really smart, and he writes books and everything. What do you think about him? Or what do you think about Hope Community Church? They got Mike Lee, that old guy, but man, he's hip, man. He looks cool. He's got tattoos, and he, he speaks so well, and the church is growing. Do you see that building that they built in Apex? I mean, it's awesome. What do you think about that? What do you think about the Presbyterians? What do you think about the Methodist? Here's what we think, all right? This is our test of what we think about all of that. What we think is, if the gospel is being preached, then we are excited. We're for them. That's what Paul says. Whatever the motive is, whatever the reason, Christ is being preached. And in that, I rejoice. They're not our competition. They're our friends. They're our partners in the greatest cause for which we can spend our lives. And that is the gospel. Period. That's our position. That's how we feel. Now, there are other churches that are in the area that aren't preaching and teaching the Bible. They preach a false gospel. We're not for them. Right? We're not for them. We're not for their mission. We love them. We look for opportunities to influence them. But we are not for them. We're for those that proclaim the gospel. Do you realize that no less than 18 times in Scripture we read that suffering brings joy? In spite of his circumstances, Paul found joy because he recognized, as we've said, that joy is never the byproduct of our circumstances. I want to remind you again our working definition in this series of joy. Joy is the supernatural satisfaction. It's really important that you get that. All right, if you've written that down, underline that word supernatural. There's going to be some pastor that's going to tell you, choose joy. You ever get irritated when somebody says that to you? Just choose joy. Choose joy. Be happy. Choose joy. You're going, you know what? If I could just simply choose joy and be joyful, then I would do that. It's not as easy as just choosing joy. You don't just go up to the drive-thru and say, I'll take some joy. I choose joy. That's what I want. Give me joy. That's not what happens. Joy is supernatural. So if it's supernatural, and some of you need to buy into this, by the way, you really do, because you're searching for a lot of things that you think are going to bring you joy, and some of you are old enough, you've lived long enough to realize none of it works. That's because it's supernatural. It comes only from God. And it is a deep satisfaction then that comes supernaturally in the person, in the purposes, and in the people of Jesus. That's how we get joy. Paul recognized that. That's why he can say, in all of this, I rejoice. Because the gospel's going forth. In spite of my suffering, in spite that I'm chained to this guy who's got bad breath, and the guy that comes after him is not using the right guard, because you can only imagine what that was like. And that's what I've been thinking about this week. Stinky, stinky. These were men. Filthy, nasty men. In spite of all of that, he says, I'm joyful. Five observations about suffering in 30 seconds. Number one, suffering will not be avoided simply because you have an extreme amount of faith. Some of you come from churches. You've heard pastors, even on TV, that have told you, if you just have a little more faith, God doesn't want you to be sick. God doesn't, doesn't want you to have a need financially. And so if you'll just sow a little seed... You just sow a little seed and all that will go away. It'll be great. Joy. That's what happens. You just need to have a little more faith. Suffering will not be avoided simply because you have an extreme amount of faith. If it was, Paul could have avoided suffering. 
Job could have avoided suffering. Jesus himself could have avoided suffering. Number two, suffering is not necessarily a punishment for sin we've done. I know some people that immediately when you start to suffer, you go, what did I do? What did I do? I confess. I confess. What did, what did I do? Suffering sometimes is not a punishment for sin that we've done. In fact, very often it's not. Do you remember in John 9, Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and his disciples, they, they see a man who's blind. And the disciples, remember they're students, they're learning, right? And so as they're walking along, they go to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, that dude's blind. Who committed sin? Did he commit a sin or did his parents commit a sin? Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Jesus said, it's not an issue of sin. He said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I love that passage in John 9. Suffering is not necessarily punishment for sin we've done. Number three, suffering can be for the purpose of correction. Sometimes suffering can wake us up from the condition that we're in. Sometimes we're traveling in the wrong direction and we need to be woken up. And it's at that point that God does bring something calamitous into our lives. Suffering can be for the purpose of correction. And number four, suffering is not to be avoided at all cost. Even though that's what you want to do and that's what I want to do, we want to do everything we can to avoid suffering. Some of us, in fact, make decisions in life so we can avoid any, any inconvenience, any pain, any conflict, any friction, any suffering. Some of you are like me. If you're on the road and you go, you know, construction traffic ahead, you're going, Siri, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to go through that because I'm going to have to wait. I'm going to have to do this. And so immediately you want to go off on a detour rather than saying there's a possibility that this should not be avoided. We need to embrace the idea that sometimes God calls us to suffer and to endure pain in this life. And that's what Paul did. He embraced his chains in Rome because he knew something else was happening of eternal value. And then lastly, suffering will not be fully understood in this life. I think that's really important to understand. Maybe one of the greatest things you could walk away with, that profound little statement, really actually nothing profound about it, just a reminder, that suffering will not be fully understood in this life. I get tired of people that sit with me and say, well, you know, God will ultimately reveal it to you. you know, he may not reveal it to me till eternity. And can I just say at that point, at least for me, just speaking honestly, a little too late at that point, like, I don't really care, right? Do you? You think you're going to get to get to the, the, the throne room in heaven and sitting at the feet of God, and you're going to be going, now, I want to know why that. You think you're going to be doing that? I don't think so. I think we're going to be so in awe of that moment that anything that happened down here, if somebody walked up to us and said, remember that time? They go, I don't remember it. Because sometimes suffering is not going to be fully understood in this life, but we do know the Apostle Paul said that one day Jesus is going to make sense of it all because now we only see a small part. But when we get there, we're going to see the whole bigger picture. It's going to make sense to us. When the question is asked in Scripture, who's known the mind of the Lord? It's not a question which causes you to go, me, 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 I know, I know. It's obvious that none of us do. There are things we're not going to understand on this side of heaven. Can I close with this? A Romanian pastor, he was imprisoned uh, during the, uh, the time that his country was under communist uh, control. In several books that are written about martyrs and things, this quote is there. He wrote this. He said, Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. 
You can only write that, you can only say that when you're in the midst of suffering yourself, when you know what it's like to go through that difficult, tumultuous time in life. One pastor who was commenting on this quote, he said it so well that I just decided to quote him rather than to put it in my own words, and I close with this. He said, we would call you to be humble, truthful, biblical Christians who receive rebuke and correction so that you can be a good, firm, straight nail. And when life hammers you, you will rejoice, not in the pain of a strike, but in the depth of its effect. You'll grow deeper in Christ because of your suffering. And you don't rejoice because of your suffering, but you rejoice because of the goodness of God to drive you deeper into the living Christ through the blows of your suffering. I would just say to you that when we grasp that, there is nothing that's going to happen in this life that we don't embrace and say, at the end of the day, it happens for the advancement, for the purpose of the gospel. And Paul says in that, woohoo! I'm excited. It's a supernatural satisfaction because I understand the purpose, the person, and I'm surrounded by the people of Jesus. Stand with me and let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage, which really deserves several more hours of exhortation. God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank for, I'm thankful for how you used him, how he was open and vulnerable and honest about the pain that he endured, at times discouraged, Yet you did a work in his heart for him to understand that all the suffering, all the difficulty that we go through has the ability to produce something very great in us and in those that observe how we walk through those difficulties of life that inevitably will come. And so I pray for my friends here. God, I pray for the person that's here that's not yet a follower of Jesus. I thank you that they are here. Thankful that they feel like this is a place where they can at least comfortably come and explore the claims of Christ on their life. Maybe some of what I've said this morning doesn't make sense to them. God, would you use your spirit to convince them of their need for the relationship with your son that they were created to have? Would you do that right now? Just bear witness of yourself to them and their need of a savior. And God, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, God, may we embrace these difficulties, these sufferings uh, in our life so that you can use them to mold us and shape us into the men, the women, the kids that you want us to be. And as we do that, God, will you advance the gospel as a result of how we handle those things? May our lives and the way our response to that suffering, may it point people to Jesus, we pray.